work hard to get what you like. Otherwise, you'll just be forced to like what you get. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, I am diving deep with Elizabeth Earnshaw. She is a licensed couples therapist. She is a Philly girl like me, and she is the author of the newly published book, I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Now, if I were to rename this for the adult child version of this book, it would be called I Want This to Work, Even Though You Treat Me Like Shit, Even Though You're an Active Alcoholic with No Intention of Getting Sober, Even Though You Broke Up With Me and You Told Me Never to Call You Again and to Lose Your Number, I Want This to Work, I Need This to Work, and I Will Make This Work. Uh, So I'm talking to her about a whole bunch of shit, such as her broken picker, or rather, I should say her formerly broken picker. Quite a juicy story there, guys, so stay tuned. I'm talking to her about boundaries, about attachment styles, and about how she navigates through a variety of issues that come up in couples counseling, such as trauma and addiction and narcissism and abuse. So, you guys are going to love this. It's a lot of interesting topics. So I'm going to keep my part short. Uh, just two quick things. First, so this podcast has gotten large enough to where I want to reach out to potential sponsors that I think would be a good fit for the show. And this will also help me continue to grow the podcast. So I'm trying to get as much information as I can about my listeners. So in the show notes, you'll find a link to a survey. It is completely anonymous. I don't need your name. I don't need your email. If you could please fill that out, it'll just take you a couple minutes. I would greatly appreciate it. And remember, you're helping me reach more adult children if you do that. And I want to give a shout out to my most recent Patreon supporters. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Robin, Alina, David, Tracy, Juliet, Jen, Jen again, Charles, Sarah Joe, Lindsay, Emily, Devin, Susan, Margaret, and Beats. Thank you guys so damn much. Uh, again, Patreon is where you guys can show me a little extra love and where I'm hosting peer support groups. You guys, these groups are so good. And let me tell you why. Because the people that have joined it are people who are willing to do the work and are doing the work. So, It's just a really amazing support and healing community that we are building. So if you have any interest, head on over there to patreon.com slash adult child and give me a damn five star rating on Apple Podcasts, please. And now for Elizabeth. It is my pleasure to introduce Elizabeth Earnshaw. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the author of the newly published book, I Want This to Work, which is a book for couples. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So we'll definitely talk about the book and topics related. I reached out to listeners to see if they had any specific questions for you and I got some, but let's just first talk about you. First, are you familiar with this term adult child? I am familiar with this adult child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your upbringing. 
So I grew up with two parents. I had um, parents who stayed together throughout my childhood, but they divorced as soon as I left the nest, which Mm -hmm. was a long time coming. And um, they were, they didn't really get along very well when I was growing up, but they gave my sisters and I a pretty good life. Um, Everybody was very conflict avoidant, even though we saw conflict a lot. How did that manifest? Did you see that? Did that impact you at all as you entered adulthood? Like, was there any faulty programming or that kind of showed up that you realized was unresolved childhood shit? Absolutely. And I've come a really long way. And I always say it's because I'm so lucky. I got like free therapy, just going Mm -hmm. to therapy school for, you know, three years or whatever, which is such um, a lucky thing to get to experience. But When I was growing up, I was always watching these relational dynamics and it really bothered me to see how people navigated conflict. We had a lot of, um, cut off. So people would get mad at each other and then not talk for like Mm -hmm. a year, like a a long period of time. Um, and I remember thinking I'm going to be completely opposite of this. I'm going to, talk to people. I'm going to assume best intentions. I'm not going to have conflict. And so it's really interesting because I kind of went opposite Mm -hmm. and my faulty programming was like programming. I gave myself in this very, um, different way of being. And so what happened is I would get into these relationships and I'd be like the nicest person ever, but in a way where I had no boundaries, I was like overly forgiving. I would never cut off with people, even if they deserved it. And as you can imagine, it caused a lot of dysfunctional relationships in my life. Yeah. So then did you have a broken picker? Yeah, I had a very broken picker. It was like the most broken one ever. It was terrible. Um, And when I dated people, I would date people who were the ones that I probably should have picked like super kind, Mm -hmm. generous. But then you weren't into them because they're boring. But I was not, oh my gosh. Yes. I was not into them because they were boring or like, I would feel this is, and it's interesting. I've heard this from others. I would almost feel like repelled, right. By the niceness. And I look back and I'm like, what in the world was that about? They were the best most attractive people in the world, but I was repelled. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm bored. It was like, I don't know if I can maintain attraction. And so I would choose people who, um, you know, they were, they were difficult. They would cheat on me. They would lie. They would say things that weren't very nice. And those would be the people that I was like very highly attracted to. And I had this sense of like, if I'm just easygoing, if, and all of this is so cliche, right? If I'm easygoing, if I'm understanding, if I, you know, let them feel understood for who they are, then this is going to work out. Um, and obviously it never did. It worked out perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out perfectly. (laughs) Please treat me like shit. So did you have like a, did you have a bottom related to that? I did. Yeah. I had had a moment and honestly, this is not like an overblown exaggeration when it happened, like my life changed. So, um, I was dating somebody for several years and it was, do you have a nickname for him? I, I, I give a lot of my guys, I have like, you know, like Mr. Looks great on paper. I had my bottoms were the story of Brian number one and Brian number two. Those were, I dated two Brian's back to back. (laughs) And those were my, that was, those are my bottoms, both alcoholics and emotionally unavailable. (laughs) My friends call him the the person who has no name. (laughs) Okay. So Voldemort. Voldemort. Exactly. So, um, he was Voldemort. And so we had this relationship looking back. That was not a strong committed relationship, (laughs) but in my head, I was like, this is the person. He is it. I was making like major life decisions around this person. And, um, I made one such decision where I left a job that was really good paying. It was in new Orleans, a city that I love. And I came back to Philadelphia to be closer to him because he was saying this could be better if you were in Philly, because I work there sometimes. So I come back and I was only there for a couple months. And within the couple months, things started not adding up. And I found out that this person had, you know, those like Russian dolls that stack on top of each other. He had like a Russian doll amount of other girlfriends all Mm. around the world. And we, we actually all connected with each other. And 
um, came together and supported each other and were nice to each other. How'd you find out? So I wasn't, I, I didn't have an Instagram at the time. How many years ago is this that we're talking? It was in 2013. Okay. So, um, I didn't have an Instagram. My cousin came to visit me and she was like, why he was supposed to come over and and meet up with us. He didn't come. And she was like, that's really strange. I want to look him up on Instagram. And I was like, I don't even know if, if he has an Instagram. (laughs) So she looked him up on Instagram, nothing there. His Instagram was clean, but she somehow found, Oh, remember at the time you used to be able to see if people liked other people's photos. Okay. I mean, can you not now? No, 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 no. Like you, there used to be a weird tab where it would say like Andrea, uh-huh. um, liked Liz's photo at 10 AM okay, and okay. like, so you would see uh-huh. everything they liked. It was kind uh-huh. of creepy. Oh, 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 the person, the person who's, I got it. I thought you meant yes. people liking his photos, what he liked. Got it. Yep. Oh, you could see yep, yep, yep. like everything. It was very weird back then that they had that now that I think about it, but she was like, who's this girl? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, I've, I've heard her name before. They're really good friends. And she was like, I don't, I don't think so. And he's with her right now because she just tagged a photo. Um, and I was like, that's really weird. He said he's at a work meeting. So it kind of all started to make sense. I contacted him. He was like, he went to a bar to make it sound like he was at a work meeting. Um, she had tried to look at me on LinkedIn before. This is mm-hmm. all how social media messes up your lies. And so I contacted her and I said, I'm not trying to do like the don't steal my man type of thing. I am genuinely concerned that we're both being lied to. If he's just your friend, no big deal. If this is a romantic relationship, you should know X, Y, and Z. And she wrote me back and was like, oh my gosh, I've been wondering if something's not adding up and we talked and we just found out these wild things. Like he would have separate hotel rooms when he was visiting us, different credit cards, different rental cars. I mean, like really wild. Did she live in Philly? She lived in Philly. Another one lived in London. How did you find the other ones? Same way. Yeah. So she and I met up and we were chit chatting about things and trying to make everything line up. And she mentioned somebody's name. And I said, no, no, that person is not his friend. That's his ex-girlfriend. And she was like, well, it must not be because they talk all the time, but he told me it's because it's his best friend. And I said, no, it's his ex-girlfriend. I know that for a fact. Um, and so we did the same thing. We contacted her and we were like, this might come as a surprise if we're being weirdos, no worry. And she got back to us immediately and was like, we live together. Um, we've been, they currently live together at that time. We live together. We have been together for over a decade or something like that. And we are engaged all of this wild stuff. And then she found even more girls and link, like it just kept kind of expanding. How many in total do you think? So luckily we were all very appropriate with each other and we didn't just try to have like a drama triangle with each other. So the last I talked to her, she had found at least three others. I think there was more because there's other people that like didn't make sense. Um, How does he have the time? So he had a job where he worked internationally all over the place. And I know, but just to be able to communicate with you all, isn't it amazing? And it was deep communication and he would take on different characteristics with all of us. So we had different interests with each person. Wild. Wow. Sociopath. Yeah. So then tell me when you confronted him. So I immediately, we immediately confronted him. He kind of still tried to lie, you know, like he came over and he cried and it was a whole thing. And I, I was like, no, it's cool. Like it's done now. And it was, it was the moment, the pivotal moment Mm of, I actually didn't care anymore. And that was the Mm. first time in my life that it happened. I never really ended a relationship and been able to be like, I'm done. There was always the sense of, if you messaged me again, I would probably get back together with you. Hell yes. You get that too. (laughs) Yeah. Like every relationship, you know, like you tell your friends, like I'm done. And just like, they text you like within five. Oh yeah, I'm here. Yeah, (laughs) I'll, I'll be at my house in five minutes. So yeah, exactly. This 
moment I had never experienced where I was like, actually I am done. I'm totally done. And, mm, um, it's so empowering. It, it was so empowering. I cried for a couple days and then I was done and I started wanting to date differently. I, um, I had just opened my practice and I got really, really focused on work. I no longer went out with people that had things that stuck out very quickly where they weren't being honest or friendly or not. yeah, like all mm-hmm. sorts of things. Like if they would cancel a date on me, I was like, Nope, not seeing you again. Whereas in the past I would have been like, of course you're busy. You're a busy man. Don't worry about yeah. it. Um, like I can make myself available whenever you're available. Whenever. <laughs> you want to see me later after you're done. Yeah. You know? So it all changed. <laughs> it all changed. Ugh. I never dated that type again which was, wow. is very good. <laughs> so when you look back on the relationship, not just that he was like an asshole and, and, but were there red flags related to cheating that you then saw that you had overlooked? Yeah, there were definitely red flags. So, I mean, one of the earliest was that he would change plans very last minute a lot. And mm. that would, that was kind of strange because there would be all of this, I guess, love bombing looking back of like, I can't wait to see you. I miss you. And then it would be, Oh, Hey, um, I just got a call in to work. I'm going to have to cancel and things wouldn't really add up. And looking back, I'm like, whether that was a sign of cheating or not, that was a sign of low investment. So I should have at that point said, look, it sounds like you're really busy with your life. Good for you. I don't know if this should move forward because I'm not going to waste my time with canceled dates all the time. Um, there were also just strange things where he would seem like he was withholding information or there would only be certain people I would be invited around and not other people. So there were these kind of siloed parts of his life. So there, there were things looking back. Um, but I will say that, and me and the other girl talked about this, that he was very skilled. And one thing that I like to talk about people (laughs) a lot that, um, you know, I meet with in therapy who are experiencing something like this. It's like, this can happen to you because people can be really good at Mm -hmm. lying. And yes, this, uh, any trauma you've had, anything like that could play a role. And at the same time, some people are really good at lying and it can be hard to see. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one click refills, insurance coverage, and 24 7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Yeah. You need to watch. There's this new podcast that I just listened to. It just wrapped up. It's called Sweet Bobby. Oh, you should. It's like a kind of like a catfishy type story. You should, it's pretty quick. It's only like six episodes. I recommend it. I'll listen to it. Um, yeah, I was a few episodes ago. I was talking about this one guy that I dated. I called him Mr. Looks perfect on paper. Um, and the, the, the real pathetic thing was that like, I knew that he was lying 
you know, it was like, and I mean, I would, I was doing like crazy shit too. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like going, going through trash cans and like he lived, he lived out. I was living in Florida at the time and he lived in New York and, um, I knew that he would lie about when he was in town. And what I remember calling just all these hotels just to see if he was at these hotels. Uh-huh. And I would, I would make, I would lie to my friend, you know, I would tell them that I would catch him in these lies. And then of course I would never confront him on them. Like, cause I was just scared to death to run him off, right. you know? Right. And so then I would make up these conversations with my friends about how I had confronted him on the lies and how like he had given me the oh. perfect response back and just so, um, it's just so sad. Uh, so sad. I actually reached out to him recently. So he's also sober. Mm. I'm not like trying to like deem anyone an adult child, but I'm pretty sure that we were just on opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I was like on the, the very anxious attachment style mm. and he's on the avoidance style. And I want to be like, Hey, um, have you hit your adult child bottom yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you Are you there yet? Should we talk? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want to come on the podcast and talk about what was going on for you? Yeah, pretty good <laughs> podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, he, so he ghosted me. Oh my um, and then I moved to San Francisco and a year and a half later, I ran into him on the street corner in San Francisco. Really? And did he, yeah. like he, I almost shit my pants. Of course he was there for work and he asked to meet me a couple days later. And I knew he either wanted to, to make amends to me or just try to sleep with me. Um, and unfortunately at that time I was probably open to either. I hadn't really hit my real adult child bottom yet. But yeah. Then we met up, you know, he, he made amends and he basically was just like, I, you know, I, I didn't treat you the way that you deserve to be treated or whatever. And, and, uh, and I just said, well, you know, there were so many red flags on my end and I just choose to overlook them, but I didn't get into it in full detail. Um, but I kind of would love to tell him what was actually going. I mean, I remember I was smoking cigarettes at the time that we were dating and I didn't want him to know. So I would like put on a bathrobe, wrap my hair up in a towel, you know, like wear right. gloves. Right. <laughs> so that you could kind of like make sure that you're the perfect uh, image yeah, of whatever it yeah. is that you thought. But I was like wanted. fucking chain smoking. Cause I was so fucking anxious the uh, whole relationship, you know? It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I was so anxious the whole relationship because it was always <sighs> the back and forth. So many tears. And I remember people around me just being like, what, like, what, why are you going through this? You know? And I know. And then the shame that that induces, you know, cause it's like, you know, it too, but you're powerless, or at least I was, I was powerless. And I would come up with excuses, kind of like what you were saying, where I'd be like, no, 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 but it's not what you're saying it is. And mm-hmm. it's not that. And, but in the back of your mind, you always know it is that, and it's just too painful to, to face it. I know. But meanwhile, it's like living in perpetual misery is being in the relationship, you know, it's It's so horrible. (laughs) So then, um, how long after that, did you meet your husband? So I met my husband in 2015. So that all went down at the end of 2013. Um, you guys need to do a podcast on that. Yeah. (laughs) And he is amazing. I met him and I, we met on Tinder actually. And uh-huh. he was immediately like, Hey, I'm not on here for pen pals. I really am looking nice. to meet somebody. Um, so I usually don't message back and forth very much. Would you like to meet by the end of the week? And I remember immediately being like, Oh my God, I think that's a good sign. <laughs> and then the end of the week was Valentine's day. And he was like, just so you know, I'm not somebody who thinks it's weird. If we go out on Valentine's day, if that's the only day that works for you. And I was like, Okay. That's another really good sign. Um, and then it snowed and I was like, ah, I can't leave my house. And that actually me being able to say to him, I need to rearrange plans because it's snowing and I just don't want to go out right now. was a Mm -hmm. huge sign to me that I wasn't acting how I used to act because I would Mm -hmm. in the past, I would have been like, I'll put myself on a treacherous road. I don't care. I'm going to go on this date because this could be the last opportunity at love. If you don't go on the date, you're probably going to be single forever, forever. And he's going to think I'm the last person on earth. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The only person. And he was just immediately like, I wouldn't want you to go out in the snow. No problem. Um, and then I think he made a funny joke. Like now we won't be weirdos who say the first time we met was Valentine's day or something. Mm -hmm. And so we went out the next day and 
I was going to leave for, I was going to Bali for several weeks, um, at like 3am the next morning. And so Mm -hmm. I only stayed on the date for like an hour because I needed to go. And he texted me, he set his alarm in the morning and texted me and said, I just know you're going to be in Bali. So I don't know if we'll be able to communicate, but I know what time your flight is. And I just wanted to say, have a good flight. And I really enjoyed our time. I hope I see you when we get, when you get back. And I was like, oh my gosh, how sweet. And then he did not bother me the whole trip. He let it alone. I sent him a message like midway through that was like, I bet you're jealous of my weather right now. And he sent me like a shoveling snow video did not bother me. Um, but then as soon as I got back, we saw each other and it's been love ever since. Think about if you had received that text before you would have been like, I would have, Oh God, you know what? Sadly, I would have said, I would have been like, he must be desperate. loser. Yeah. I would have said he's desperate. And, um, you know, I would have put it in some category of somebody not being right for me, but I was in such a good place at that time. And one of the biggest things that helped me was being really invested in everywhere else in my life that mattered. Yeah. I felt I didn't need anybody. I was like, I'm so happy with my career. So happy with all the traveling I'm doing. My friends are amazing. Like if you're a jerk, I don't really need you in my life. And, um, him saying that I was just so ready to be like, wow, what a thoughtful, kind person who is being mature enough to say, I'm interested in you. Don't forget me. Yeah. That was so a big part of hitting my bottom was like the realization of how much I had been selling myself short in other aspects of my life. Like I really had truly never thought about what a fulfilling career or life would look like outside of a relationship. And so that journey kind of led me to starting this podcast um, three years later, but it's been interesting. I've noticed cause I've, I haven't really been dating much, but I did have a date a couple of weeks ago or about a month or so ago. And, and it went well. And if he had asked me out again, I would have said yes, but he texted me two days later and he said that he enjoyed our time together, but that he didn't feel a romantic connection. And the miracle, the blessing was that that did not change how I felt about myself at all. And that's because I feel like I have built um, there, I have other things in my life that are meaningful that provide me with fulfillment yeah. to where like, that is not, I'm not, I don't need that, you know? And so that's like a huge, huge miracle. But I mean, I think it's unrealistic to think that when I do get into a relationship, some of that stuff is going to pop up. Like, I can't expect that, like, I'm going to get into a relationship and I'm going to be easy breezy and never have like moments like of hypervigilance or anxiety. So like, was that the case for you? Like, were there times when, you, I mean, this guy sounds amazing, but did you have times where at all you felt, uh, insecure or was he just such a fucking amazing communicator? Were there any times you've started freaking out? (laughs) He is. And this isn't, um, this isn't like sugarcoating him. He is a very secure person. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to be anxious with him because (laughs) of how secure he, like, if you ever met somebody that has a secure attachment style, it would be my husband. And Mm. he had had a lot of really difficult, painful relationships in the past too. So I think a lot of it was earned secure attachment as well. Like he worked Mm. on himself and all of that. Um, so in the very start, I did not, because he was always very face value. He never left me hanging. I remember a couple weeks in after I came back, I said, this is a wild idea, but would you want to go to new Orleans with me? I have to go in a few weeks. And he was like, absolutely. That sounds awesome. And in, you know, sending that message off, I remember being like shaky, like he's going to think I'm weird and he might say no. And then, or he's going to say yes. And then like, he's going to end it with me like a week before and all of this stuff. And I remember sending it off and feeling shaky like that. And his response was so casual and like normal. I don't know how else to explain it other than like, it was just like, totally. That sounds awesome. Which days that I was like, Oh, why am I so nervous? Like he does nothing to make me nervous. So the very beginning, there was nothing. When we moved in together, I did start getting a little weird for a little bit and it had nothing to do with him, but like 
I remember there was this time where his ex-girlfriend was going to be somewhere and it was like a long ago relationship. He had never indicated that there was like any lingering feelings. It was all fine. And I remember starting to do some of my stuff like, well, if you loved me, then you would tell your friends that she shouldn't be invited. (laughs) And he was like, I can't tell them that this is like a wedding, you know? We can't say she's crazy bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And like, even in those moments, he was so just like grounded, like, yeah, not judgmental. Yeah. What's going on? Do you want to, do you need to like, look at my stuff? Like, are you starting to think like I've been messaging her? And I'd be like, I don't think that, but it's just weird. Like, why does she want to be around us? (laughs) He'd be like, I, I don't know her motives. I think it's not us. I think it's, those are her friends. She wa- yeah, wants to attend a wedding. <laughs> the center. Is that okay? With you? Um, but I remember when we moved in, I did start doing some of that. Like I would get anxious. I would try to find something wrong. Like mm-hmm. there was, um, Google was up one time and he knows the story. So it's okay if I share it, but like his Gmail was up and there was, you know, the old G chat history where it, shows who you last chatted and it was Mm -hmm. her and like as clear as day the date was like five years before (laughs) but I got so upset and I remember Mm -hmm. being like well why isn't that just deleted and like and he was like it would be weird if I delete like I don't even think about it Mm -hmm. to delete it and um yeah, he was just always very grounded but I would seek things I would try to find a way that he was not being truthful. And he was truthful again and again and again. And, you know, then we got engaged and honestly, like I haven't had reasons to feel that way. So it's been pretty good since we've gotten engaged, been married, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like a a form of like, um, like a self-sabotage defense mechanism. Totally. And I mean, it's nice when you have the opportunity not everybody has that, right? Like that self-sabotage thing comes up and then it might trigger stuff, the other person's stuff. And then you don't get that secure response you need to help you mm-hmm. feel grounded. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was, I'm very lucky that he has that to give to me. So on that, when you're working with couples, what would you say is the most common attachment style combos that you're seeing for people that are coming in to work with you? Yeah. So I think it would be mostly anxious avoidant. Yeah. We're attracted to our opposite. We look for avoidance are very attracted to people who tend to be more anxious because in those beginning stages, it safely brings out of them the things that they don't know how to bring out of themselves. Right. It's like, Mm oh, this is, this isn't a full commitment. We're just not getting to know each other, but I finally am allowed to feel like passion and talk about feelings and all of that. And then a, a more anxious person can feel really safe at first with an avoidant partner because it's like, wow, they, they're not too chaotic. There's not much going on. This feels good. But then unfortunately, as time moves on and they start to notice like this could be more of a commitment those things don't feel good to either person. It feels really hurtful to not be able to either get that space you're looking for and that autonomy or that reassurance that you need. Um, and I'll work, I work with a lot of couples who they make it through, they get together, they build the commitment, but they're kind of always going back and forth with each other with this pursuer distancer type of thing. I could never get them to last that long. I mean, I would have walked down the aisle. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so I never like, get them to- everybody's on a spectrum, right? And mm-hmm. you have people who might be on like very far ends of the spectrum. Yes, that was me. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but then as we grow and we get more security and all of that, a lot of people have that lingering no matter what. I mean, I'm sure I do. If something happened, I would still probably be like, who's pinging you right now? It's 2 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Even though there's not any reason for it. So those, those pain points are still there, even as you build confidence and security. Um, mm-hmm. And so yes, maybe the more on the more extreme ends, they're not in couples therapy with each other, 
but those who have kind of been able to move enough towards each other, but not enough completely, they end up being in my office. So then at what point in the process, um, or I don't know if it's just, it comes up while you're with them, but the whole unresolved trauma piece. Yeah. So we talk about that a lot in couples therapy. And one of the things that we will usually tap into that is when there's some sort of like a constant conflict pattern or perpetual issue that's like every week coming into the room. And I'm just like, okay, this is about more than like why your partner wants to stay at the office until 6 PM or something, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. about way more than that. And so we'll have a conversation, um, where we take a step back from trying to solve the problem. And instead we talk about the ways in which what's happening feels familiar to any feeling Mm -hmm. you've had before the relationship. And so I'll say to them, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to rewind the track of your life and wherever you notice yourself hitting a similar feeling in that, in your memories as what you're feeling when you're arguing about, um, finances or whatever, I want you to tell us that story. And that's often when some of that trauma will start to come up. So they'll say something like, it reminds me a lot of, you know, when my dad wouldn't come home and everybody in the house knew it was because he was having an affair and my Mm -hmm. mom would be crying in her room. And when you come home late, it reminds me, it it reminds me of those feelings. And I feel the same feelings. I feel like you've betrayed me, even if you haven't. Um, Or, you know, somebody might say, I rewind back and it reminds me of these experiences I had where nobody gave me space to be myself. I was constantly corrected. I was constantly criticized. And so when you bring me feedback, I can't take it from you because all of these past experiences are still kind of alive in me. And to me, that's actually like the most powerful moments of couples therapy is it's like, this isn't, this is personal because it's impacting you, but it's not personal. This is so historical for me. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, are you encouraging them to seek their own therapy or do EMDR? How does that go? Yeah. So depending on the issue, um, I will encourage them to seek their own therapy. Often people are in their own therapy, which is really nice. Um, but if they're not, if it's a trauma that I think would be helped with EMDR, then yes. If it's something where it might not be helped with that, I'll refer some sort of other type of therapy. Um, and then they continue working in couples therapy together because one of the the most healing pieces of trauma work is having a safe relational container where you can be like being abandoned was a trauma to me. So you coming home late, even though you're not abandoning me, my body experiences that way. And for the other person to be able to say, I never knew that, you know, I, I have to work late, but what can I do? So you feel safe. Like, how can Mm -hmm. I be present for you in a way that's going to help you to know that I love you. Even when I'm at the office late, what can I do? And those are really beautiful moments where that person, maybe for the first time in their life can relax and be like, Oh, wait, there's a way to resolve this problem. I don't have Mm -hmm. to just feel bad about it. I don't have to figure it out by myself. I don't have to call the hotel to find out if you're there. Like you're giving me permission to be comfortable with you. Are there ever circumstances where you advise that they need to kind of focus on their own individual work before couples therapy can be beneficial? Sometimes. Yes. Um, that happens. I am very, so I'm a systems therapist, so I'm really comfortable navigating like many different systems that people might be, um, in. And so there are times, but I find that when people are going through all of that, that even if we're not going to do deep work in couples therapy, that sometimes it can create a really safe container where it's like, we're doing the deep stuff in our individual therapy. We're doing EMDR, all of that. But, you know, once a month as a couple, we can kind of convene and talk about like what's going on, what we need support with, where we're going to go next. And so if they're doing work in individual therapy, I make sure that whatever we're doing helps that, um, Mm -hmm. and doesn't 
take away from it. Now, if every time we're getting together, there's an explosive fight in the, the therapy room and it leaves them feeling worse. And then they have to like deal with that in their individual therapy. I might say we should pause and we'll come back. Um, once this has been worked on. What about when one, one person in the couple is in active addiction or alcoholism? I still work with people. Um, and I actually have a colleague who specializes in that because, and it's different. It's a different type of work, but we work on kind of the relational impacts of it and helping, you know, maybe the partner who's not in the active addiction to like be educated on how to be the best type of support, how to make sure that they're not leaning into like codependency or enabling behaviors to make sure that they're not utilizing shame as a way to try to change their partner. Um, and then, you know, also working with the partner who's in active addiction to be able to, um, start to recognize through hearing their partner, like impact, why this is important. We found, we find that a lot of people come into couples therapy and they have addictions that they're not admitting and they're blaming everything on the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty fascinating because it'll be like, we fight all the time. We have a terrible relationship. Da, 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 da. And then I'll be like, so how many of your fights was drinking involved? Oh, you know, like, I guess the last 95%, (laughs) the the drinking wasn't the problem. It's, it's the fighting and it's because we disagree with each other. The drinking is just, you know, whatever. And it's usually in the couple's work that they're finally able to face that it's real because there's a second person there that's like, no, you can't frame the story any differently. Like you're because, you know, unfortunately, individual therapy can get away with some stuff with your therapist. Um, couples mm-hmm. therapy, you get away with way less because your partner's saying mm-hmm. things like, did you tell her that like you fell down the steps last week and had to go to the ER or did you leave that out? And so you get this really full picture. Um, and then sometimes when that happens and somebody's finally willing to kind of explore that, that is when we might pause and we might say like, let let's let your energy be with your addiction treatment or with exploring what's happening here. And I can support your partner right now. Um, but we always say it's a temporary pause. You're welcome to come back when you're ready. Yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting that occurs when, um, somebody in a relationship gets sober, you know, they change so much. And I think oftentimes, yeah. Then they would then realize that it's not the right relationship for them, you know? Uh, so do you see that very often? Yes. Um, and it's a really important conversation that we have with couples, which is like, let's track what happens here. You know, you're going to have to get to know each other in a different way. And one reason that couples therapy can be really helpful is because sometimes the couple, the couple's system the couple system itself can pull the person back into addiction. And what I mean Mm. by that is that the partner might say, I really want you to get help for this. But then as their partner gets help, their partner becomes a different person. Yep. And they don't like that. Yeah. And like some of the people I get it, they're saying, but I miss how much fun you used to be so open to having fun with me or used to be, and now you're doing X, Y, and Z. And I want that back and they'll pull them back in they don't, you know, most of the people I work with, it's not malicious. It's just this natural attempt to maintain things. And, um, so being in couples therapy is helpful because your therapist can then say changes are normal. You know, you're, you have wanted your partner to get well. Part of them getting well is that they're setting boundaries. Now part of them getting well is that they're not hanging out with certain people that they have to say no to certain things that they're expressing their feelings. Can we work with this or not? And kind of continually tapping into now that things are different, do the two of you want to be together? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a scary conversation to have, but really, really important. How much of it too, is that the non addicted spouse is not doing their own work? Yeah, that can happen when I'm working with people and my colleague who this is really what she does with most of her work, um, 
I should connect with her. I'd love to talk to her. Yeah. She's so, she's so good. I would love to connect you with her. Yeah. I'd love to have her on. Yeah. She's so smart. Um, but a lot of it is really helping that person get into treatment too. Right. So it's really easy to have an identified patient is what it's called, where it's like, Oh, the one drinking too much, that's the patient. You're, you're just the, the person here to support. And you don't want to get into that. You want to be able to be like, this is where their work is. You also have work, you know, what's going on with you. How can you set boundaries, ask for what you need, walk away if you need to. Um, and so we really encourage that they do that individual stuff. The non-addicted partner is, is, is just as crazy and sometimes even crazier <laughs> than the alcoholic or the addict. So yeah, yeah they need <laughs> that person. Something is going on for them too. Like we were talking about earlier, that's brought them into this system and is making them feel kind of like they don't have the power to get out. What about situations where you've had to blatantly tell a couple, like we're not getting anywhere. This is not working. Yeah, it's hard, but I say it, um, you know, when I'm working with a couple where it's not working, I think it's kind to say that because they're already thinking it right. No, one's coming into therapy every single week, having terrible sessions and then thinking to themselves, this must be working. They're thinking, is she ever going to tell us what to do here? And Mm -hmm. so at a certain point I do, I will say to people, you know, what are you thinking here? Because, and then I'll just, I'll just say what I've seen. I've seen that, you know, we've talked about this. We've tried this. You both come in and you are X, Y, and Z. You're miserable. You're sad. You're frustrated. You're getting into really bad fights. Your kids are witnessing it. Is there any way that I can give you permission to not continue. And it's, it's their decision, but I think sometimes they need somebody to be like, you have permission, like you have permission to continue, but you also have permission to tell me and bring up that you want to end. And that's, you have to bring that to me, but we can talk about that. I'm, I'm okay with that. And that's how I'll usually approach that situation. What about with like narcissists? Is there ever a point where you're working with a couple one person is clearly being emotionally or psychologically abused. You don't have much hope that the abuser is going to change or is willing to change. Are you ever direct with that other spouse? Like you need to get the fuck out of this. Yeah, definitely. So there are narcissists rarely will actually come to couples therapy. (laughs) So, and if they do, they'll only, it's, it's pretty sad. They'll only come for a few sessions and it's mostly to to be able to say, I did it. Mm-hmm. And if they're with a really strong therapist, then what will happen is the therapist will start to identify some of the things that are problematic. You know, a therapist might say something like, it sounds like you're having a hard time empathizing or the way you just express that is really critical. You know, that's, that's hurtful. Could you try it this other way? And so they'll very quickly find a reason, you know, if somebody's truly a narcissist to say like, I can't do it anymore. I didn't like her. It's usually like credential backed. You know, I mm-hmm. looked her up and she, you can't help, you can't help us the way I think mm-hmm. you can help. Um, or they will make the partner the identified patient. So they'll say something mm-hmm. like, it's not us, it's her. If she wants to keep coming, she can. When that happens, that is like my, I salivate. I'm like, thank, that is great because now we, you are no longer my client. We can, can, we can sever that. And now this is my client and I can say, and I also have the beautiful ability to say, I've met your partner. I've seen what happens. Let's talk about that. What's going on? How can we build you up to not have to live in the submission of their grandiosity? Cause that's what happens in those relationships. One person's grandiose, one person then feels they have to submit and, Mm -hmm. or they get so confused that they have to submit. And so it's really nice when that happens. Cause you can say, I saw it with my own eyes, X, Y, and Z. And what we need to do is we need to figure out how do we move you forward? Now, there are some times where they will continue therapy or someone isn't full blown narcissistic, but they have narcissistic tendencies or abusive tendencies. And in those cases, I mean, it really depends. Sometimes I will say to both people, what's happening right now is abusive. 
you know, the way you just spoke to him or the way you just spoke to her or whatever is abusive. I use that word with people because I think we have a huge problem in society where we only use that word publicly about the worst abuse. It's like you know, physical, sexual. Yeah. And nobody sees it. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So like we, in this, we, in society, we think, well, an abuser is this specific type of person and we have an image of that person, right? Like, and then what happens is when we're doing abusive things, we're like, well, I'm not an abuser because an abuser is that, you know, what mm-hmm. I'm doing is an abusive. Mm-hmm. And so I like to really talk about it openly with people like that is abusive behavior. It is abusive to belittle people. It is abusive to confuse people. It is abusive to, you know, hit below the belt. These are, these are abusive things. And sometimes there's, we could talk about this for a long time. There's two types of abuse. There's characterological, and then there's what's called situational. And if somebody is a quote, situational abuser, what that means is that they're both abusive towards each other. So both people are belittling, emotionally abusive towards each other. In that case, when you name it and identify it, sometimes things can change. Mm. And that's usually because there was trauma there, really bad coping skills that they need to learn differently. With a characterological abuser, though, it really can't. And in those Mm. situations, I find a good reason to meet with the person being abused privately usually something like, I haven't had a time to talk with you both individually. Could I meet with you by yourselves? Um, and I will say it, I'll say, I, I usually print something out. I say, I want to print out the signs of abuse here. They are, I want to tell you about the two different types of abuse. Hmm. You are believing that this is situational. You are believing that it can change that if we name it, if we work with it, it'll get better. That is not what this is. This is characterological abuse listen to all these points that I have about why, and we can navigate this. We can tread lightly. If you want, I will be your support through it. And I can't continue to support your relationship moving forward Hmm. in any good faith. Um, and how is that usually received? Usually very well, you know, really that's wonderful. Yeah. I've never had somebody actually say, no, that's not true. Most people start crying and they'll say, you're the first Mm. person to say it. Um, what do I do? I'm embarrassed. Um, I, I feel so sad because I love them and I don't know what to do about it, but you're right. And they also feel really relieved because sometimes There are many different beliefs around this. And some therapists will be like, well, it just has to be done. I'm going to cancel the appointments and we're not going to come back in here. I like to create a really safe container for them and to say like, so what's our next step? If you'd like, I'm happy for a month to continue meeting with the two of you. I'm not going to play into the abuse, but like, I'll help to make this kind of seem like that's what we're doing to move forward as you know, you work with an individual therapist to get your strength up to, yeah, to, to put the pieces in place to leave. Yeah. yeah. Or I can make up something. I can say, I don't have appointment availability anymore, or I can tell your partner that I think I would like to work with them individually and that, you know, I don't need to see you. I could tell your partner that I think you have a problem and you need to come see me and they can't see me anymore. Like, what do you think would actually make this feel safe to explore? And, um, I think that gives people a sense of like, thank God, nobody's forcing me to do something. Mm. I can figure this out. Um, yeah. And it, most of those cases, luckily I've been able to help that person navigate out in a way that it was okay because the other person finds a way to navigate themselves out as well. Okay. A a few questions from people that wanted to know. So, um, okay. So one was, can attachment style affect sex? Meaning like intimacy specifically, can it turn you off? I lose attraction quickly. That's such a great question. So if you think about attachment, what we can think about is that attachment is about our anxieties with closeness. So somebody who's anxiously attached they have a lot of anxiety that they're not going to be able to be close enough that people mm-hmm. are going to abandon them and leave them. 
somebody who's avoidant has a lot of anxiety that they're going to get smothered, that they're not going to have autonomy anymore. Um, it's going to be too much. And so of course, all of that has to do with intimacy in general. It has Mm -hmm. to do with emotional intimacy has to do with experiential intimacy, intellectual, physical, sexual, all of these types of intimacy, because all of those things have to do with closeness. And so if you are really worried about whether or not this person's going to be close enough and intimate enough with you and you're anxious, then there's a lot of things that might come out of that. You might say, it's too much for me. So I cut off from my body. I don't, I'm not a part of it. You might say, well, I end up doing things I don't want to do sexually because, um, I want to turn them on. And my biggest fear is if I don't turn them on, then they're going to leave me. You might feel like if we have sex too often, I'm going to be too giving of myself and that feels too close. So I need to pull away. So yes, absolutely. It can impact intimacy. It can impact sexual intimacy. And then the other one was how can avoidance tell if they're detached or if they've truly fell out of love with a partner? Hmm, That's a good question. And there's no easy answer to it. (laughs) And And something for somebody who feels as if they're more on the avoidant side of, of the spectrum of all of this, that's actually something you have to work on is the ability to have uncertainty. And Mm. to lean into that and to actually feel your feelings around that. And so being able to say to yourself, this is really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable that I can't figure out if I'm in love or if I'm just pulling away and then being able to lean into, well, what would connection ask of me right now? Connection would ask me to have the conversation. What happens with people who tend to be avoidant is they don't let anybody else into these dilemmas. And Mm -hmm. so they just break up with the person or they stay with them forever, but they're miserable and no one else knows about it. And the other person is often like none the wiser. They have no clue. And so you have to ask yourself, if I really want to move towards connection, can I lean towards it even now in my uncertainty? Can I say to my partner, something's been feeling different with us. Do you feel it? I'm not sure what's going on for me. I'm worried that I'm growing apart from you. Do you have thoughts? And like letting them in to that conversation. Wonderful. Okay. And then the last one was just, um, (laughs) baby steps to setting boundaries for someone who is horrible to you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love it. I have baby step ideas. So first, maybe get the fuck out. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) The baby step is change the locks. um, Exactly. (laughs) Go into witness protection, (laughs) move to another country. Anyway, I will tell you baby, baby, baby steps. So the babyest of all baby steps is to start setting boundaries, not with that person, but with someone who is like so low stakes. So, um, you know, somebody butts in front of you in line obviously politely, but just being like, oh, hey, I was standing here. Or if you get the wrong food at a restaurant, having the ability to say, hey, you know, no, it's really not a big deal because it's okay to still be kind. It's not a big Mm -hmm. deal, but I ordered a salad and I got pasta. Would you mind bringing me the pasta out? So doing really low stakes boundaries first. The second tiny boundaries that you can start paying attention to are basic need boundaries. So when people aren't good at setting boundaries with others, specifically, I think in romantic relationships, they stop having boundaries with themselves. So you need to start with your own boundaries with you, which means like if you need to sleep and this person texts you at 3 p.m. or I'm sorry, 3 a.m., not 3 p.m., that would be okay. If they text you at 3 a.m. and they say, hey, I want to see you now, (laughs) it's actually not about the boundary you set with them. Because it doesn't matter that they texted you at 3 a.m. or it shouldn't matter to you. What should matter is that you have boundaries with yourself to like not check the phone or that Mm -hmm. you have boundaries with yourself that you're staying in bed until you wake up at seven. And Mm -hmm. so these small boundaries are things like, can I pay attention to basic needs? Have I had water to drink? 
Have I eaten food? Am I getting enough sleep? And when that person treats you terribly and gets in the way of those things, it's not even about what you say to them. It's about, I'm going to meet these needs first. So Mm. they say to you, no, we're not going to stop for food. You know, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that you want to you know, walk across and grab food, just being able to say, well, I need to eat. So I am going to eat right now. Like these small things that you're going to do for you. It's not about changing that other person. So do you want to talk a little bit about the book? Why did you write it? Sure. So I wrote the book for a few reasons. One is that when I work with couples, I always find myself wanting to recommend a book and there's a ton of amazing books out there. But to get all of the different types of info, you have to read like Mm -hmm. eight books. So Mm -hmm. I'd be trying to explain attachment styles and I would have to send them to it attached or the power of attachment. I'd be talking about communication and they'd be like, well, what should we read? And I'd be like, I guess Gottman. And so they'd have all these books, which they would never fully read all of them. And then they themselves had to integrate well, how does attachment match with communication and match with this? And so I wanted to create a book where it's like all in there so that Uh people can see that it all connects. It's not like attachment style is, is versus communication habits. All of this has to work together. The other reason I created it is because I was working with a lot of same sex couples and when I recommended books to them, I was noticing that the books had no same-sex couples represented, which mm-hmm. was like a shocking revelation. I was like, wait, these are the biggest books on the market. What, how did that even pass through editing that <laughs> that was not included? Um, it feels purposeful and that feels really wrong to me. And so these books were great, but I would have my couples come in and say things like, you know, I read it, but I noticed that there was no same sex couples represented in the examples. Does this apply? And of course it does. And the research in them had even been researched on same sex couples. And so I just wanted to create a book where every couple is integrated in it. It's like, no big deal. You're all here. You can see yourselves here because it applies to relationships in general. So those are the two reasons that were super important to me. I love it. And so you got that going on and then you have your podcast. And then I have my podcast. I've got, I am on a podcast called good risings and it's really fun. It's super short segments. So each morning I'm on for just five minutes talking about some sort of relational dilemma and giving information. Nice. And then what else, anything else you want to show? Yeah. I mean, other than the book and being on the podcast, I am the co-founder of a premarital counseling program called Let's Actually Go, where we help couples take a proactive um, stance towards their relationships, but we do it in a super fun way. Um, And right now we've started with premarital. Is that virtual? It's virtual. It includes um, sessions with therapists mixed with really fun virtual activities that you do with your partner. And it's, it's really cool. Like my husband and I, even though we're married, we went through it together and it was just the most fun thing to learn about each other. Nice. Yeah. And you have your, your private practice. I do. I have a private practice in Philadelphia called a better life therapy. And we service people in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, California, Utah, Maryland, I think that's all the places and we focus on relationships. So we're super passionate about helping people wherever you're at with relationship issues. Nice. Well, I will include all that shit in the show notes. Um, and we'll, we'll put in Voldemort's, um, Instagram. So people know to not respond if he DMS them. Yeah. Well, the Instagram has disappeared. So we know what happened to him. It's really funny. We, I have not thought about him for years. And the other day, my sister was like, what do you think happened to Voldemort? I was like, I really have no clue. And she went to look him up and there is nothing on the internet. I am very curious about what yeah. happened. And if this story resonates with any person listening right now, and you think you might be dating Voldemort, you really might be dating Voldemort. <laughs> it, yeah. Let us know. Hit us Let up. No. <laughs> <laughs> if there's well, more been- pieces of the story i want to know them <laughs> yeah me too we'll do a podcast about it i can you know, investigative journalism oh 
my gosh, it would be the best investigative journalism podcast. Oh man. Does it make you cringe when you think about it now or can you laugh at it? I laugh. It doesn't make me cringe okay, good. at all. And okay, honestly, I, I hope that, it, you know, I hope it was his youth. I hope that he has changed. I know that he is probably not, but for the, the betterment of the world and himself, that is my hope. Yeah. I have no feelings towards. Sounds a little too sophisticated to just be you. <laughs> a little too sophisticated to have something fix that, but yeah. there's a hope there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. One can wish. Well, thank you. This One has been so wish. awesome. It was so nice to talk to you. today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. And as always, I know that you did. Thanks again to Elizabeth. Check out the show notes for links to her book and for ways to contact her. I thought that that was a a really interesting conversation. Let me know what you guys thought. So I have these Gabby Bernstein um, tarot cards. Universe has your back. I just had them sitting next to me right now. So I thought I could just pull one and see what we get to leave us on a positive note. So I am shuffling, shuffling, shuffling. And now I am picking. Mm. (laughs) That's perfect. Thank you, universe, for helping me see beyond the limits of fear. Thank you for expanding my perceptions so that I can see what is of the highest good. I will repeat that because this is a good reminder for all of us. Thank you, universe, for helping me see beyond the limits of fear. Thank you for expanding my perceptions so that I can see what is of the highest good. I had an idea. I want to make adult child like tarot cards. I want to do like 52 cards of all like kind of my favorite quotes from a variety of different sources. So I'm in the process of making some merch, guys. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Next week, going to be a really good interview. It's with Eddie Pepitone. I don't know if you guys have heard him on um, Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's like one of the the faves there. So I'm talking to him tomorrow. Super excited to do that. And yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Pod. Um, and I love you all. Thanks again for your support. Seriously, it means the world to me. And I'm gonna see y'all next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super raw. It's gonna be super vulnerable. And I am super damn excited for y'all to hear it. It's gonna be a goodie. I promise. i